Volume 1, Chapter 7 of Marius the Epicurean This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marius the Epicurean by Walter Patter Chapter 7 A Pagan End for the fantastical colleague of the philosophic emperor, Marcus Aurelius, returning in triumph from the east, had brought in his train among the enemies of Rome one by no means a captive. People actually sickened at a sudden touch of the unsuspected foe, as they watched in dense crowds the pathetic or grotesque imagery of failure or success in the triumphal procession and, as usual, the plague brought with it a power to develop all pre-existent germs of superstition. It was by dishonour done to Apollo himself, said popular rumour, to Apollo, the old titular divinity of pestilence, that the poisonous thing had come abroad. Pent up in a golden coffer, consecrated to the god, it had escaped in the sacrilegious plundering of his temple at Seleucia by the soldiers of Lucius Verus after a traitorous surprise of that town, and a cruel massacre. Certainly there was something, which baffled all imaginable precautions and all medical science, in the suddenness with which the disease broke out simultaneously, here and there, among both soldiers and citizens, even in places far remote from the main line of its march in the rear of the victorious army. It seemed to have invaded the whole empire, and some have even thought that, in a mitigated form, it permanently remained there. In Rome itself many thousands perished, and old authorities tell of farmsteads, whole towns, and even entire neighbourhoods, which from that time continued without inhabitants, and lapsed into wildness or ruin. Flavian lay at the open window of his lodging, with a fiery pang in the brain, fancying no covering thin or light enough to be applied to his body. His head being relieved after a while, there was distress at the chest. It was but the fatal course of the strange new sickness, under many disguises, travelling from the brain to the feet, like a material resident, weakening one after another of the organic centres, often, when it did not kill, depositing various degrees of life-long infirmity in this member or that, and after such descent, returning upwards again, now as a mortal coldness, leaving the entrenchments of the fortress of life overturned, one by one, behind it. Flavian lay there, with the enemy at his breast, now in a painful cough, but relieved from that burning fever in the head, amid the rich-scented flowers, rare pistum roses, and the like, procured by Marius for his solace, in a fancied convalescence, and would, at intervals, return to labour at his verses, with a great eagerness to complete and transcribe the work, while Marius sat and wrote at his dictation one of the latest, but not the poorest, specimens of genuine Latin poetry. It was, in fact, a kind of nuptial hymn, which, taking its start from the thought of nature as the universal mother, celebrated the preliminary pairing and mating together of all fresh things in the hot and genial springtime, 
the immemorial nuptials of the soul of spring itself and the brown earth, and was full of a delighted mystic sense of what passed between them in that fantastic marriage. That mystic burden was relieved, at intervals, by the familiar playfulness of the Latin verse-writer in dealing with mythology, which, though coming at so late a day, had still a wonderful freshness in its old age. Amor has put his weapons by, and will keep holiday. He was bidden go without apparel, that none might be wounded by his bow and arrows. But take care, in truth he is none the less armed than usual, though he be all unclad. In the expression of all this, Flavian seemed, while making it his chief aim, to retain the opulent, many-syllabled vocabulary of the Latin genius, at some points even to have advanced beyond it, in anticipation of wholly new laws of taste, as regards sound, a new range of sound itself. The peculiar resultant note, associating itself with certain other experiences of his, was to Marius like the foretaste of an entirely novel world of poetic beauty to come. Flavian had caught, indeed, something of the rhyming cadence, the sonorous organ-music of the medieval Latin, and therewithal something of its unction and mysticity of spirit. There was in his work, along with the last splendour of the classical language, a touch almost prophetic of that transformed life it was to have in the rhyming middle age, just about to dawn. The impression thus forced upon Marius connected itself with a feeling, the exact inverse of that known to every one, which seems to say, You have been just here, just thus before. A feeling, in his case, not reminiscent, but prescient of the future, which passed over him afterwards many times, as he came across certain places and people. It was as if he detected there the process of actual change to a wholly undreamed-of and renewed condition of human body and soul, as if he saw the heavy yet decrepit old Roman architecture about him, rebuilding on an intrinsically better pattern. Could it have been actually on a new musical instrument that Flavian had first heard the novel accents of his verse? And still Marius noticed there, amid all its richness of expression and imagery, that firmness of outline he had always relished so much in the composition of Flavian. Yes, a firmness like that of some master of noble metalwork, manipulating tenacious bronze or gold. Even now that haunting refrain, with its impromptu variations, from the throats of those strong young men, came floating through the window. Crasamet qui nunquamavit, qui quamavit crasamet, repeated Flavian, tremulously, dictating yet one stanza more. What he was losing, his freehold of a soul and body so fortunately endowed, the mere liberty of life above ground, those sunny mornings in the cornfields by the sea, as he recollected them one day, when the window was thrown open upon the early freshness, his sense of all this was from the first singularly near and distinct, yet rather as of something he was but debarred the use of for a time than finally bidding farewell to. 
that was while he was still with no very grave misgivings as to the issue of his sickness, and felt the sources of life still springing essentially unadulterate within him. From time to time, indeed, Marius, labouring eagerly at the poem from his dictation, was haunted by a feeling of the triviality of such work just then. The recurrent sense of some obscure danger beyond the mere danger of death, vaguer than that, and by so much the more terrible, like the menace of some shadowy adversary in the dark, with whose mode of attack they had no acquaintance, disturbed him now and again through those hours of excited attention to his manuscript, and to the purely physical wants of Flavian. Still, during these three days, there was much hope and cheerfulness, and even jesting. Half-consciously, Marius tried to prolong one or another relieving circumstance of the day, the preparations for rest and morning refreshment, for instance, sadly making the most of the little luxury of this or that, with something of the feigned cheer of the mother, who sets her last morsels before her famished child, as for a feast, but really that he may eat it and die. On the afternoon of the seventh day he allowed Marius, finally, to put aside the unfinished manuscript. For the enemy, leaving the chest quiet at length, though much exhausted, had made itself felt with full power again in a painful vomiting, which seemed to shake his body asunder, with great consequent prostration. From that time the distress increased rapidly downwards. Omnia tum vero vitae claustra lababant, and soon the cold was mounting with sure pace from the dead feet to the head. And now Marius began more than to suspect what the issue must be, and henceforward could but watch with a sort of agonized fascination the rapid but systematic work of the destroyer, faintly relieving a little the mere accidents of the sharper forms of suffering. Flavian himself appeared, in full consciousness at last, in clear-sighted, deliberate estimate of the actual crisis, to be doing battle with his adversary. His mind surveyed with great distinctness the various suggested modes of relief. He must without fail get better, he would fancy, might he be removed to a certain place on the hills, where, as a child, he had once recovered from sickness but found that he could scarcely raise his head from the pillow without giddiness. As if now surely foreseeing the end, he would set himself with an eager effort, and with that eager and angry look, which is noted as one of the premonitions of death in this disease, to fashion out, without formal dictation, still a few more broken verses of his unfinished work, in hard-set determination, defiant of pain, to arrest this or that little drop, at least, from the river of sensuous imagery, rushing so quickly past him. But at length delirium, symptom that the work of the plague was done, and the last resort of life yielding to the enemy, broke the coherent order of words and thoughts and Marius, intent on the coming agony, found his best hope in the increasing dimness of the patient's mind. In intervals of clearer consciousness, the visible signs of cold, of sorrow and desolation, were very painful. No longer battling with the disease, 
he seemed, as it were, to place himself at the disposal of the victorious foe, dying passively, like some dumb creature, in hopeless acquiescence at last. That old, half-pleading petulance, unamiable, yet, as it might seem, only needing conditions of life a little happier than they had actually been, to become refinement of affection, a delicate grace in its demand on the sympathy of others, had changed in those moments of full intelligence to a clinging and tremulous gentleness, as he lay on the very threshold of death, with a sharply contracted hand in the hand of Marius, to his almost surprised joy, winning him now to an absolutely self-forgetful devotion. There was a new sort of pleading in the misty eyes, just because they took such unsteady note of him, which made Marius feel as if guilty, anticipating thus a form of self-reproach, with which even the tenderest ministrant may be sometimes surprised, when, at death, affectionate labour suddenly ceasing, leaves room for the suspicion of some failure of love, perhaps, at one or another minute point in it. Marius almost longed to take his share in the suffering, that he might understand so the better how to relieve it. It seemed that the light of the lamp distressed the patient, and Marius extinguished it. The thunder, which had sounded all day among the hills, with a heat not unwelcome to Flavian, had given way at nightfall to steady rain, and in the darkness Marius lay down beside him, faintly shivering now in the sudden cold, to lend him his own warmth, undeterred by the fear of contagion, which had kept other people from passing near the house. At length, about daybreak, he perceived that the last effort had come, with a revival of mental clearness, as Marius understood by the contact, light as it was, in recognition of him there. "'Is it a comfort,' he whispered then, "'that I shall often come and weep over you? Not unless I be aware, and hear you weeping.' The sun shone out on the people going to work for a long, hot day, and Marius was standing by the dead watching, with deliberate purpose, to fix in his memory every detail that he might have this picture in reserve, should any hour of forgetfulness hereafter come to him with the temptation to feel completely happy again. A feeling of outrage, of resentment against nature itself, mingled with an agony of pity, as he noted on the now placid features a certain look of humility, almost abject, like the expression of a smitten child or animal, as of one fallen at last, after bewildering struggle, wholly under the power of a merciless adversary. From mere tenderness of soul he would not forget one circumstance in all that, as a man might piously stamp on his memory the death-scene of a brother wrongfully condemned to die against a time that may come. The fear of the corpse, which surprised him in his effort to watch by it through the darkness, was a hint of his own failing strength, just in time. The first night after the washing of the body, he bore stoutly enough the tax which affection seemed to demand, throwing the incense from time to time on the little altar placed beside the bier. It was the recurrence of the thing, that unchanged outline below the coverlet, amid the silence in which the faintest rustle seemed to speak, 
that finally overcame his determination. Surely here, in this alienation, this sense of distance between them, which had come over him before, though in minor degree, when the mind of Flavian had wandered in his sickness, was another of the pains of death. Yet he was able to make all due preparations, and go through the ceremonies, shortened a little because of the infection, when, on a cloudless evening, the funeral procession went forth, himself, the flames of the pyre having done their work, carrying away the urn of the deceased, in the folds of his toga, to its last resting-place in the cemetery beside the highway, and so turning home to sleep in his own desolate lodging. Quis desiderio sit pudor aut modus, tam cari capitis? What thought of others' thoughts about one could there be with the regret for so dear a head, fresh at one's heart? End of chapter 7